this is Matt Zanker standing in for David Sylvan. Over the next few installments of our podcast, we're going to continue to roll out some of the talks from our New Frontiers event that we held in November with our partners at NASA Glenn Research Center. The event, entitled Innovating for Systemness and Wellbeing, combined fascinating perspectives from healthcare experts with NASA scientists, flight directors, and even astronauts to compare notes about crisis preparation, management, and building a new future. While recorded virtually, these panels benefited from some visual cues, so you're invited to check out the videos on our UH Ventures YouTube channel, but we thought the content was worth sharing on our podcast as well. For the fourth part of our series, let's listen in to UH's Dr. James Voos, NASA astronaut Colonel Douglas Wheelock, and ESPN Cleveland's Aaron Goldhammer. Here is Patricia with the panel introduction. Enjoy. Now, for our fourth and final panel, experts from healthcare, NASA, and ESPN Cleveland join us to discuss the cutting edge technologies used to prepare astronauts for missions and professional athletes for competition. These experts will share how we can apply these practices to improve the health of our community. Let me introduce you to our moderator, Aaron Goldhammer with ESPN Cleveland. Aaron Goldhammer is a Denver native and has lived and worked in Cleveland since 2006. He began his career with Good Karma Brands at WTLX-FM in Madison, Wisconsin. And he also started co-hosting The Really Big Show in Cleveland with Tony Rizzo on ESPN 850 WKNR in February of 2007. In 2014, Aaron joined Edmund Golden as co-host of The Golden Boys. Aaron hosts evening and weekend programming on ESPN Radio and has appeared on Cleveland Correspondent for ESPN TV on SportsCenter, Mike and Mike, and Outside the Lines. And importantly, Aaron has also appeared alongside Kevin Costner in the featured film Draft Day and worked with ESPN Films for their 30 for 30 entitled Believe Land. Aaron and his wife Allie reside in Shaker Heights. Now for our last panel, a couple of guys talking about sports and space. Aaron, take it away. All right, thank you so much, Patricia, and welcome everybody. Hope everybody is having an inspirational and fulfilling day. And this is All Systems Go, well-being inspiration from the edges of astronautics and athletics. It's a panel that has nothing to do with the plot line of LeBron James in Space Jam 2 coming to theaters this summer. As Patricia told you, I'm Aaron Goldhammer, and I am definitely not an astronaut. I'm even less of an athlete, but I am super excited to be here with you guys today to listen, to learn, and to take part in a really cool conversation with some people who have some of the coolest jobs ever on Earth and beyond. They will share some amazing stories, but I think you'll also realize that they often struggle and manage some challenges that relate to what we might face in our everyday careers um, and our personal lives. And with that, I want to introduce you to our two amazing guests. Um, Colonel Douglas Wheelock looks really cool in his blue NASA jumpsuit today and even cooler in full astronaut gear. He is a graduate of West Point. He earned a master's of science degree in aerospace engineering from Georgia Tech 1992, was selected by NASA in 1998. And if you think your quarantine on a couch has been tough, Colonel Wheelock spent a total of 178 days in space where he conducted three unplanned spacewalks to replace a faulty ammonia pump module. Colonel Wheelock considers Windsor, New York to be his hometown, and it's great to have him here today. Colonel, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Aaron. Great to be with uh, you. Meanwhile, back here on Earth, we have Dr. James Muse with us today, the head team physician for the Cleveland Browns. And he is busy taking care of both some of the greatest athletes in the world on Sundays. And he may also be on the sideline at your local high school on Friday night. Dr. Voost currently serves as the chairman of orthopedics at both UH and Case Western Reserve University. He is also the medical director for the Cleveland Ballet and has been selected by Cleveland Magazine as a top doctor for four consecutive years. Dr. James Voost, thank you so much also for making time for us to have some fun this afternoon. Aaron, thank you. Excited to be a part of this great panel. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited too. You know, you guys both have jobs that when you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, you're often going to hear about careers in sports, I think. And at least when I was a kid, a lot of, you know, me and my friends said that we wanted to be astronauts. Um, and I know I wanted to win that Nickelodeon trip to space camp and go on Double Dare when I was a kid. Uh, so, Dr. Voos, let's let's start with you. When did you know that this is what you wanted to devote a good chunk of of your life to? Yeah, I, I grew up uh, with a healthcare family, not necessarily uh, physicians, but uh, nurses and and scientists, and was an athlete. Played uh, high school and collegiate sports. Uh, so those two really uh, really blended well together. And uh, in high school and college, started. Um, working in the operating rooms, mopping the floors and changing the beds. And <laughs> so this really became a almost an apprenticeship where uh, being involved in sports and being immersed in healthcare from a young age, it was a very uh, natural and fulfilling transition to head into medicine and to realize that you could you could really accommodate both of these as, as a uh, sports medicine physician was a great way to marry uh, the two things that we were interested in all through growing yeah. up. Yeah. Doug, do you remember Neil Armstrong? Strong walking on the moon, and and did that have a big impact on you when you were growing up and drive your career decision making? Absolutely, I grew up in a really small town in upstate New York, uh, mm -hmm. just on the west side of the Catskills, and a uh, very country little town. We lived out in the uh, by near a dairy farm, and uh, and I was just going into into fourth grade back then. But I watched uh, them walking on the moon, and. Um, it seemed like a universe away from what I was doing, uh, just an ordinary kid in that small town. Uh, but I went to school that next year in elementary school, and I had a brand new teacher. Her name was Christine West, and she spoke into my life uh, words of like magic uh, to me where she said, who saw the moon landing? And I raised my hand, <laughs> and uh, she said, one day you could do that too. And we all thought she was crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, but as the years went on, I realized, uh, looking back, you know, that... Um, these incredible dreams that we have as, as kids, you know, that dreams really do come true. And so it's, it was a, it was a process for me, but it really, it really changed my life as moon landings. So. Just as an aside there, did you ever get a chance to meet Neil Armstrong before he passed away? I did. And that, in fact, um, years later, I was selected in 1998 mm -hmm. as an astronaut. And um, uh, in fact, it was August 24th was my first day as oh an astronaut. Had my had my electric blue suit, and uh, three days later we had the astronaut reunion, uh, where all the old pioneers come back. We actually have a reunion every two years, mm -hmm. and they usually the dinner on Friday night. They have these big round tables with eight or ten chairs at the table, and they always put the rookies uh, with the old pioneers. And so that night at dinner, I I, I sat next on Neil Armstrong's table, and I was just frozen. I didn't know what to say. What am I going to say to Neil Armstrong? And and actually, I'd gone through so much time of my life. You know, I was in my 
uh, late thirties at that time. And, um, but he said something to me that really, really propelled me in my astronaut career because I, I kept reflecting back on my teacher and how she, I, I kept thinking, I wonder if she was right. If, you know, ordinary kids like me can do things like this, you know, uh, go to space. And so I asked, it came my time to ask something, you know, and I didn't know my knees were shaking, you know? So, but I remember how I felt as a little boy, you know, watching him walk on the moon. And so I wanted to know how he felt, you know, as this superhero, you know? So I, I said, Mr. Armstrong, when you were on the moon, uh, did you get a moment where you could just kind of reflect on what a profound moment it was in human history? He said, you know, I did. I thought about my family and I thought about my teachers. I thought about those engineers that built that rocket. And I thought to myself, how does an ordinary little boy from Wapakoneta, Ohio, end up standing on the moon, you know? And he laughed and we all laughed. I said, wait a second, that's kind of a familiar story, you know, because it was my story as well. And and the reality is it's a story for all of us. We're all really just ordinary kids from ordinary places, but we have these extraordinary dreams for where we want our life to go and our career that we want to follow. You know, we have these great dreams. And it was a it was kind of one of those life light bulb moments that went off for me. It's like, hey, wait a second, you know, that ordinary kids like me can do these incredible yeah. things as well. Dr. Voos, like Colonel Wheelock, you've you've come into contact with some um incredible game-changing type of people, athletes in your case, uh, in your travels and in your career. Um, and I'm just curious, what what happens in your world? Um, like, not, I, I know I can't ask you about specific player injuries, but the I imagine people here know that there is a significant Browns player who it is now public has a torn ACL uh, and is out for the season in, in Odell's situation. So just generally though, if you can speak to What's going on in your world when an injury like that takes place? Um, you're on the sidelines and, and what the step-by-step -step, uh, view of, of what happens through your eyes is uh, when an injury like that invariably in a very high contact sport takes place. It's, it's an incredibly uh, unique environment, but it still boils down to that physician-patient relationship. Uh, one part is the preparation for it, having your team there, your emergency action plans, all of your processes in place so that whatever injury happens, you can react and be prepared uh, to care for that athlete. Uh, but the, the unique part of it is you're sitting there on the field examining someone as if you would examine them in the office um, in, in your regular clinic. And yet you realize there may be five or 10 million people watching you perform that examination and you can hear the, the camera up above you moving behind you. And so it creates that environment where you realize that you're taking care of this person and there's a lot of eyes on you. So it really helps you really to uh, slow things down, really focus on that athlete, really keep your attention on them because they're still a human and that humanity component of let's take care of them and react. But then you still really need to engage and help that. And it may be one of the most famous athletes on the planet, uh, but they're in a tough situation and, and it's, it's very emotional for them. And they realize that everybody's eyes are on them as well. So it's how can you help give them their their uh, respect and attention that they need and efficiently so that you can get them off the field and deliver the care. Yeah. And then there's, then there's the delivery of information or dissemination of information of making sure everything is crisp and clear mm -hmm. and appropriate in that dissemination of information. And then there's multiple more parties involved. Often in the office, you're talking just to the patient or the, to the patient and their parents. Yeah. 
but you're talking with that athlete and then you're uh, discussing uh, things with the general manager and their mother and their agent and how are we going to uh, going to uh, assemble this care appropriately. So while it does boil down to pure medicine, there's a lot of these other moving parts uh, moving parts going on around you, uh, but it does boil down to the humanity aspect. Again, even the most famous of athletes are still a patient and you realize they still have the same emotions and concerns and needs that all of yeah, us. You you talk about the the pressure of it all, um, and I sort of have this I don't know any given Sunday I don't know if you've seen the movie vision of what's happening between these doctors and patients because really as you said it it isn't uh, like a doctor star player or a doctor player relationship it's a doctor patient relationship um, how how is a decision made at that point about whether or not a player can re-enter the game. Because we, we see all the time on TV it pop up, okay, player XYZ is, is questionable to return or is doubtful to return. And sometimes they're back on the sidelines. And what, what, is, what is that decision-making process like generally? Yeah, there's a, a lot of factors that go into play and it's a great question. And it boils down to uh, even before that game, uh, what's the patient's uh, history or the player's history of injuries in the past? Have they been dealing with this for years or dealing with this more recently during the week? Um, and then ultimately, is it safe for them to return? If there is a, a neck injury or a ligament injury that, that certainly puts the player at harm, we definitely do not ever have those players return. But if there are those uh, quote unquote lesser injuries that um, that player's DNA allows them to, to emotionally handle that injury better, they know that they have the uh, the strength or they, they've uh, demonstrated their ability to return, then we'll often let them return to play. And, and we always have that discussion about what the risks are. Uh, but a, a, that part of their uh, history of injury, how have they dealt with these in the past? All of those things help us make those decisions. And then ultimately that the player, uh, after we examine them, they move around and they test their body a bit, gets that sense of whether they're ready to go. Okay. But there, there's no doubt it's a it's a stressful moment. But and the player ultimately or the the decision ultimately comes down yeah. to the the player. We want to make sure that they're safe and yep. they uh, feel good yeah. about them. The the phrase mental toughness comes to mind as I'm listening to you talk about the player's role in that. Um, and Colonel, I know that's super important in in your role as you're preparing either yourself or fellow astronauts for what could be a long journey off of our planet. Um, and you know we've we've talked off uh, pre-panel about NASA and the way that you focus on preparing hearts, minds, bodies, and souls uh, for what astronauts are going to endure when they hit their version of the playing field, right? When they uh, when the rocket goes up in, into the air and isn't going to come come back for a while. Um, what, how, how do you balance um, the physical demands of that journey with also the mental and emotional toll that it's also invariably going to take on? That's a great question. And, and uh, I know that the doctor was touched on a couple of things where we try to prepare. When you, when you think, like when you think about an athlete, we usually only, as fans, we usually think about the physical performance, right? The human performance, um, not really realizing uh, the same is true for a lot of high stress, kind of high energy uh, professions like the astronaut office. We, um, we, we try to focus on not only physical health, but mental health, psychological health, and like 
a spiritual connection for us, the, the, the purpose-driven mm. health of the, of, the, of the person. And so we try to keep a well-rounded, almost like a legs on a table, you know, so we, without one of those legs, the table will, will tilt over, you know, so we, we try to focus our training and our preparation uh, of our astronauts to prepare for this journey, whether it's 15 days, like my first mission was, or six months in space, like my second mission was, and we're gonna, we're getting ready to send our kids and our grandkids to Mars one day, and they're gonna be away from the planet for two to three years. And so we have to, the preparation that goes into that, uh, heart, mind, body, and soul, has, as you had mentioned, is all is all the pillars of our astronaut training. And so, and I didn't really realize that when I first came in, of course, mm -hmm. you know, I was a, I was a test pilot by trade. So I walked in the door and I sort of, sort of uh, figuratively said like, I'm here, where's my rocket, you know, but not knowing that I, I had, I was in no way prepared uh, for what I was going to do. And I actually trained for nine years before my first launch into space. And when I strapped onto the top of that rocket, I kept thinking back, it's like, I wonder if I prepared well enough, you know, but, um, but our motto here at the, in the astronaut corps is that chance favors the prepared mind. And so uh, I think Louis Pasteur was actually the uh, person that first coined that phrase, but um, it's all in the preparation for us. It's uh, in preparing the heart, mind, body, and soul uh, for this journey. And so it's it's kind of the whole person uh, development. Yeah. So very very important to us. And human physiology, human performance is uh, is our key fundamental that we build on here in the astronaut corps. I'm well. curious to hear from from both of you guys on this. I mean, I, I had to prepare to do this panel today, right? And so I wrote some things down and I did some research and we had some exploratory conversations, just getting to know each other. Um, but I was thinking a lot about the concept of preparation because when, how did I know when I was really ready? And at what point would continuing to prepare actually hinder my ability to be able to adjust and react in the moment? I mean, maybe Colonel Wheelock or Dr. Voos, you would say something here on the panel that like, I wanna be listening to that so that I can say, hold on a second, you know, I, I want to take the conversation in that direction. That really jumped out to me. I think there is such a thing in life as as over preparing. And so I'm I'm curious to know from you guys how people should know when they're ready to do something big, like take the SAT or um a big exam or or perform, you know, in, in Dr. Voos, in, in your case, a major surgery. And I, I want to, uh, in particular, I'm, I'm interested in you talking about this through the lens of the first time that you. So for Dr. Voos, that would be the first time that you had that scalpel in your hand. And for Colonel Wheelock, that would be the first time that you got strapped in and you were about to depart the planet on which you were born. So Dr. Voos, why, why don't we start with you? I know, I know there's a lot there to unpack. Uh, no, it, it really does um, uh, boil down to how you've prepared and then what those experiences are building upon each other, you know, starting all the way back from reading the anatomy books of seeing the pictures and learning the names of all the, stru all the structures 
and then entering the anatomy lab and actually doing a dissection or walking through a, a surgery on a cadaver or on a, a virtual reality simulation. And then you add in, and this is very similar to Colonel Wheelock, and there is even much more sophistication. Then you add in all the equipment and the toys that you've got to use to do it. I finally learned what all these body parts are and how can I make this approach into the body. And now you have a, a scope in your hand and this toy and that tool. So it really allows you, uh, there's that whole secondary part of learning how to use all the, the tools and machines and advancing technology that updates to perform that surgery or to, to adapt uh, to, uh, each time. And then uh, our orthopedic training in and of itself is five years plus another year of, of pure sports medicine fellowship where you start by doing a lot of watching and then gradually doing more and more parts of those procedures and being uh, given those opportunities to operate. And I think that's really the, you ask about when it's time to take the SAT. And I do think that simulation and being able to execute you learn so much more exponentially more than just purely reading the textbook because then you learn that subtle mistake here or subtle mistake there where you're corrected. I think that sticks in your mind even more so that when you do go out and perform those procedures, you remember, oh, I made this little mistake here or that I need this instrument at this point. You've gone through that simulation. You've made the mistake and been able to correct in an environment where you're not, you're not hurting or affecting someone. So even with the, the changes we make out on the field um, during training camp and even prior to training camp, tr uh, practicing those emergency action plans, simulating them on the field, that gosh, maybe we should put the spine board on this sort, side of the patient instead of that side of the patient, or the way we use this thermometer or such needs to be, needs to be positioned differently. So I think those simulations and practice really help out an awful lot. And I, I did want to make comment, even in, in the COVID environment, in the NFL, as we know, we test every single day. Uh, we live in a pseudo bubble. You know, when we travel on the plane, we all wear our Kinexon devices that show us how close we are. We wear our different masks. We prepackage the food. And that's a lot of trial and error to figure out how do you position people on an airplane? When do you test? You know, what time of test do we, uh, uh, do we test each morning? Even things like that. And it takes those multiple iterations of it to get to a final point. So I, I do think there is a, 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 that position where ultimately you've just got to go do it and, yeah. and do it in an environment where you can make those modifications. And uh, Colonel Wheelocks are even more um, life or death <laughs> and even more um, uh, stressful from that standpoint. But it, it really does help to do those simulations over yeah. and over. Colonel? Yeah, it's, it's the same components that doc, the doctor just mentioned. I remember, you know, when I was growing up and, and playing my sports, I dreamed one day of becoming a professional baseball player. But uh, as soon as I saw a 95 mile an hour fastball, that, <laughs> that, that career change, career path change, you know. But, um, but when I think about it, you know, when, when I was a kid, I always remember, you know, practice makes perfect, you know, practice makes perfect. I remember one of the first days after I, re after I got here to NASA, um, someone said to me, I think it was one of the old pioneers that said, you've heard that practice makes perfect. Not true. Perfect practice makes perfect. And I, and, and I think like, what does he mean by that? And, and uh, nine years later, I realized, um, and just like the doctor had mentioned, that the, the, the essence and the nuance comes in the preparation. And uh, for us, we practice every day and we practice failure, which is at NASA, it's the first place I've ever worked that where yeah. we practice every day of our lives. We practice what failure looks like, what it feels like, 
what lights you're going to see, what your spaceship is going to be telling you when it's failing. And so and it's, it's hard. I mean, it's difficult, but it's, it's the same thing the doctor is, is talking about in, in honing your skills as a surgeon or even as a professional athlete. When you're, uh, when you're able to, um, to uh, you know, with humility and authenticity, realize where your shortcomings are and then and build on those, uh, you know, through, through uh, practice, perfect practice, simulation. Um, and and the, it was so true for me. I was, I was scared to death when I strapped into that rocket. It was a space shuttle discovery was my first, uh, my first launch. And I strapped onto the top of that rocket and I, I kind of went primal, you know, and I, I said like, I can't believe this is happening to me, you know? And, um, but, but all the practice over all those years and when we, fa we had failures and we did, we had some pretty epic failures in space, but I felt like as I, I've been here before, I, I felt this feeling before because I've, I've practiced failing and uh, we don't like to do that as humans. I mean, we, it's not natural for us because one of our greatest fears as humans is the fear of failure. And sure. so, but in the, in the, uh, you know, in the pursuit of greatness in any field, whatever you're in, and you're, you're good, not only are you going to encounter failure, you're going to fail if you want to, if you want to get to that point where in the, where you're in the big leagues or, um, as the doctor mentioned, at the top of your game as a surgeon, you, you have to be, you have to get to that point. It's like, I've seen this before. I, I, I know how my, I'm going to react. I know what the right thing to do. And so um, through perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. Um, it's what you're saying really resonates with me because I, I work in a world where oftentimes the mistakes that we make the failures that we have on our show, even technical failures, are where the gold is. You know, it's our show is interesting when the roller coaster is or the train is riding really cleanly down the tracks. But oftentimes, the most memorable moments are what we do when the car comes off the tracks and how we try to get it back on. Um, Sometimes when you're prepared, when you've done that perfect practice and when you don't panic, um, when you know a failure arises, when you're able to stay calm and breathe um, and really find a solution to work your way through the problem, it can be where the really fun, memorable content is. So I want you guys each to pick out a story, a moment of failure um, from your a high stress moment of failure um, from your career uh, and just speak, you know, 60 seconds uh, from each of you on what happened and how you navigated your way, your way through it. Uh, Colonel, we'll start with you. Okay. For me, I can point to the very day. It was November 3rd, 2007. I was in space. I was on my third spacewalk and um, in we had a torn solar array on STS-120. Uh, the, the solar array on the space station had torn and we had to figure out a way to go out and sew it up, uh, put stitches in it. And so we built these stitches inside the space station and then crawled out on that solar array and sewed it up. Um, the problem was I was, when you're, in, when you're out in, outside in space, we're orbiting the earth once every 90 minutes. So we get a sunrise or sunset every 45 minutes and in direct sunlight, it's about 300 degrees Fahrenheit. And when the sun goes down or you're in shadow, it's about 300 degrees below zero. And we don't have any heating in the suit. And so I, I was positioned at the bottom of this solar array. So I was in shadow. I was shadowed by the, 
by the structure of the space station. And my hands got so cold, I started shivering and I could see my breath was fogging my visor and my hands were frozen where I couldn't close my hands. Uh, and I started to kind of, that little mini panic attack is that how am I ever gonna get back to the airlock? I can't even grab onto something to hang on to. And so um, I had a little sliver of sunlight uh, up above me, about 10 feet above me. And I, I remembered that in direct sun, that sunlight is about 300 degrees. And so I, I kind of shimmied up this solar array and I put my hands in the sunlight to warm my hands up. And, and, uh, and so the panic kind of kind of went away and I was able to, uh, able to close my hands, but it was just that, that practice of knowing, knowing what the circumstances were, were what, the, what the environment was. And I had very limited options. I had a couple of options, either live or die, right? So, uh, and I wanted to live. And so I, I, I realized there was a sliver of sunlight and through my practice and through, my, uh, through, through the study of my trade, uh, of my profession, I knew to put my hands in that sunlight and warm them up. So, uh, I, of course, I'm back here safely on Earth, and so. But it was one of those moments where um, it was. It was again. It was really primal because I had to act right away, or I, I was going to be stuck out there. You know, lost in space, as we say. So, um, so anyway, that was my moment that jumps out. Of here, so. Well, uh, much less uh, uh, exhilarating than Colonel Wheelock, uh, but uh, that similar similar um, uh, concept of there's that one moment where you look around and you've got to be the one that makes the decision. Uh, my prior practice prior to coming here to Cleveland was in the operating room and there was a power outage across the, the grid of that part of town. and. And the generators kick on, but there's always a moment where the uh, instruments flash and some things, uh, some of the equipment has to reset. And this was during a shoulder arthroscopy procedure, which is a, a poke hole procedure where we're driving a camera and it's effectively like playing a video game. You're operating up on a screen uh, instead of having an open incision inside the patient. And that arthroscopy equipment did not come back on. And so you're in the middle of a procedure and while it's not life or death, want to be able to appropriately serve that patient. And so it's surveying, do we need to get new equipment? Can I make us a, a very small additional incision uh, to go in and be able to see that patient's anatomy and, and uh, repair or fix that issue? And that, that's ultimately what you had to do was completely convert from this arthroscopic procedure and be able to uh, be prepared and, and make the, the little open incision and, and change the, the style of how you're doing the procedure to still serve them appropriately. So while it was a, um, uh, in not purely life or death, but there's instances like that where you really have to um, have to change and, and figure out what's what's plan A and what's plan B and how you, because uh, you can't just walk out of the operating room, you have to get the job done. And so you look to your left and right and, and everybody's staring at you. Yeah. And so it's how how do you how do you react and and get your team to stay on pace with you? Uh, to get it's amazing. I, I feel like I've seen that ER episode where the power goes out and <laughs> the, and the generators kick on um, a million times. We have just uh, a couple of minutes left, um, guys, and I appreciate your time so much. This has been so insightful and and really fun. Um, but I, I wanted to talk that there was a documentary that came out on HBO um, earlier this year called The Weight of Gold. And the film is about what happens to Olympic athletes um, who win the gold medal uh, after they're done with their Colbert and Jimmy Fallon and Today Show appearances. 
and there's just quiet left. I mean, what, 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 do, you, what do you do then? You've been working your whole life towards something. Um, and you both have these jobs and, and also uh, Dr. Boos in your case and, and Colonel Wheelock, you're now working around people and helping coach people um, who are also working towards that mission or that trip to the playoffs. Um, and so mentally, how, how do you prepare for what happens after the major project is done and you're back at home and you're just sort of sitting on the couch wondering, wondering what's next? Can sure. we go first, Aaron? Or... Okay. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm kind of living that right now as an, as an astronaut in, my, in the, I would like to say the twilight of my, uh, of my flying days anyway at NASA. And uh, when I came back from space, I actually had a, uh, I was from the radiation, from the six months of radiation, my eyes were damaged. And so uh, I was grounded for a little bit of time. And uh, then I went on to uh, start training the younger um, astronauts uh, to how to how to do spacewalks, how to launch and survive in space. And um, I began to kind of wander a little bit because I, I felt the limelight was gone for me, you know, it's probably similar to like when an athlete gets an injury and they're kind of on the sidelines, they're coaching, but that those moments of glory, you know, that you uh, sort of feed you when you're in the prime of your career. Um, I was now kind of on the other side of that wave. Um, and I had to really kind of draw on, um, there, there was actually an event, actually my dad, uh, I was speaking to him about it. And, um, and he said, you know, it's, it's kind of like anything in life that you do, it's like we're all writing our own story, the story of our life, you know, and uh, you're either going to write it or you're going to have some, somebody's going to write it for you, you know. So we, in, an, in our story that we build for ourselves, we're always the hero of our own story. And he said, like, he said, you'll be amazed. My dad told me, he said, you'll be amazed how much joy and how rewarding it is to become a hero in someone else's story. And I never, I'd never really realized what he meant by that until I started taking what I learned, the things that I learned with the heart, mind, body, and soul as I prepared my own, for my own journey into space. I said like, you know what? I can use this to help other people. And, um, and so now I, I wear this blue suit with pride. That I, I, uh, I don't know if I'll get a chance to go to space. I, again, to space, I would love to go. But, um, but now I take incredible joy. It's such incredible joy for me to work with the younger astronauts coming along now, how to train them to survive in space. And uh, it all sort of came to a, um, uh, actually I was in Cleveland last year, just before we, the kids started school, we had a back to school um, special there at the city, the auditorium uh, downtown, the beautiful auditorium uh, downtown Cleveland. And the mayor was there. We had a lot, we had a NASA uh, booth that was there. And um, I, a lot of kids, a lot of parents, a lot of teachers, were coming by and we had like free NASA stickers and things for them. And I was there in my blue suit and I had this little boy come up to me, he was seven years old. And, um, and I was talking to him and uh, his name was Maximus. And I said, you know, I, I was asking him about school. I said, are you having a good day? And he goes, this is the best day of my life. Yeah. And I, I looked at that little seven-year-old boy and I thought like, here, I, I looked at it as sort of like, I have this appearance I gotta do. And I was just sort of going through the motions. You know, I really enjoy those things, but. But I thought like, you know, every moment that, that we're out there representing our profession, um, people are looking up to us, you know, that uh, they want to be where, where, where we are or where the, where the athlete is. They want to they attain those 
greatness in their life. And so, and so it really spoke to me that's like, you know what, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my career to becoming a hero in other people's story, you know, and, um, and it's been such a great joy for me to, uh, to realize that. So um, it's, it's, it's really quite, uh, quite a rewarding time in my career. That's, that's awesome. Doctor? I think that uh, the concept of really uh, paying it forward and really helping someone else achieve their dream, I think is a huge part of it. And I talk with our uh, docs that wanna do this every day. Uh, it, there's no doubt it's wonderful to have the, the recognition and, and I cer certainly appreciate the, the scope of where we're, of the environment that we're in. But ultimately it's, it's challenging yourself as to why you're there and you're there to, to serve that athlete. And for me on the, on the side, additionally, it's, I wanna learn the, the, the best way to take care of somebody both surgically and the newest technologies that are out there. So for me, it's a continual education, right? It's the, it's a, the, the pleasure and the appreciation of serving those, those particular athletes, but then it's uh, being exposed to an environment where you're a, a perpetual learner. And so now it, it's, uh, for example, with the growth of wearable technology, I've engaged our biomedical engineers here at Case Western, and now we're doing a lot of research studies related to sports and not even having anything to do with sports at all to become a student in another, another arena I would never have even, have even thought about. And then ultimately it is passing down that knowledge and we're fortunate to be at an academic institution where we have residents and fellows and uh, imparting all the things I learned uh, from Dr. Warren, the, the, the uh, physician for the New York Giants, and Dr. Brown was the head physician for, uh, physician for the Kansas City Chiefs. You realize you start emulating all the things that they've said to you and you find yourself saying those same things or imparting those same things to those residents and fellows. Uh, so it does help to pass on that information and, and help to train that next generation in whatever way you can uh, uh, participate in that capacity. So for me, it's been that, been the, the pleasure to serve, uh, continuing to be a student, learning things you would never have thought you were gonna learn about, and then passing on uh, all that experience and knowledge to those uh, that next generation who wanna, uh, wanna participate in this special. Well, listen, you guys, you know, this has been a, such a unique time for events like this, where we wish we were all physically in the same place. Um, but I feel connected now more with you guys and have so many interesting takeaways uh, from this conversation and appreciate your time so much for doing this. And uh, hopefully in 2021, we can find a way to do it again and have another conversation, but actually physically be in the same room uh, and be able to take some questions from the audience, uh, et cetera. But thank you so much for your time. It was great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This was part four of our New Frontier series. So please stay tuned for one more uh, coming to you in the next couple of weeks. We'll talk to you soon.